Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Marionette Theater. It's time for the show about film and television trivia. Matinee Minutia. Please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Hey, you guys want blankets? Oh, uh, do we want blankets, DJ? Um, sure. You know, actually, I I'm glad uh, you mentioned the the uh, chilliness in the the theater here because it's got a little better. We happened to notice that there was a hole in the roof. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, don't look at me but Mm. I mean we do have our showgirl to thank because uh, well she knows a guy (laughs) go figure I know a guy who knows a guy you know what I mean so Toppy Mm. it it continues to be chilly and I have it on good authority that tonight is supposed to begin the official start of winter is it really? Does that mean it's the the winter solstice? It is. I, now, I don't think it's like the spring solstice, so don't try to, um, you know, uh, balance an egg on it. Said. Wait a minute. Is this true, Spanky? Is this the solstice? <laughs> Spanky will know. He'll type in the chat room. I, you know, there, there may be some events with northern lights or, you know, that might just be the party at the North Pole and speaking. <laughs> no, Spanky confirms. Excellent. It is the blessed solstice. Yule is here, he says. Oh, well, I was going to say, um, speaking of parties at the North Pole, I hear there's a little party going on downstairs. Shall mm. we, uh, you know, uh, tune our ear down towards that floor? I'm ready. He, she's ready. Go. <laughs> Batman smells Robin laid an egg. The Batmobile lost the okay, wheel. Okay, Gertie. Oh, uh. hey there. Happy holidays. Say, folks, I've got gummy Martians at the concession stand tonight. Mmm. Uh. Pop a few. Anyways. <laughs> oh. <laughs> In the 60s, American children grew up hearing air raid sirens and listening to duck and cover. (laughs) But they were also left to wonder, what if there was life on Mars? And what would Martian children think about Christmas? Ah, well, dust off your Flash Gordon ray guns, kids, and get out your wetsuits. It's time for Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. <laughs> get up, boys. What do you get when you take a dash of the silver screen, a pinch of golden oldies, and a smidgen of screaming? It's time for Matinee Minutia with your host, DJ and Toppy. Well, hey there, folks. It is just the Friday before the big day, and uh, we're going to be talking about a film that involves the little kiddos and little green men. That's right. Uh, how to describe this movie, DJ? How to describe this movie? Well, I'll just start with that. We'll get it out of the way first thing. Uh, it, it's Martians kidnap Santa Claus. Why? Because there's nobody on Mars to give their children presents. Uh, well, the children of Mars are growing distracted due uh, to their highly rigid societal structure. See, you see, on Mars, kids, from infancy, all the kids' education is fed into their brains through machines, see? And they're not allowed to to do have any individuality or freedom. They're not allowed to play or just have fun. It's really awful. So... The only way to help the children, a a few of Mars' brighter citizens decide, is to allow them their freedom 
and uh, be allowed to have fun. But to do this, uh, Mars doesn't know how. They need a Santa Claus. And so they decide they're going to kidnap Santa Claus. And uh, from there, the movie goes on. <laughs> now, this is a film that was made in the uh, early to mid-60s. It was made in 1964. And uh, as we begin the discussion of what went into making this and the folks that were behind the scenes, we like to put your mind into the perspective of what was going on then. This yes, is, a little history, if you please, DJ. Yes, the world in 1964. In 64, U.S. Surgeon General Luther Leonidas Terry reports that smoking may be hazardous to one's health. Hmm, you think? And it was the first time this was made uh, stated in a government statement, so it's official. Also in 64, former astronaut John Glenn announced that he would be seeking Democratic nomination for the U.S. Oh, Senate. I thought you were going to say he announced that he saw uh, UFOs. <laughs> well, he may have when he hit his head. Um, he shortly thereafter declared uh, he was not going to run because he, he had a little oopsie at home. Oops. Yeah. And in 64. The Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show, and this marked their first live performance on American television, and it was seen by 73 million people. A game changer, a pop culture event, a television, huge major history that night. And also in 64, Shea Stadium opened in New York, and uh, the Ford Mustang was officially released to the public. Uh, mm -hmm. Put your orders in there. And let's see, just a couple of other things to finish out. 1964, we have... The uh, President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, which abolished racial segregation. Yeah, on paper, anyways. Yes, it was it was the beginning to an end. And in uh, that summer, Mary Poppins had its world premiere in Los Angeles, and it became Disney's biggest moneymaker, winning five Academy Awards, including Best Actress for Julie Andrews. Hmm. And she sang so well in it. She did. Uh, speaking of celebrities, 1964 saw some celebrities that we know today. Uh, they were born. Uh, Nicholas Cage, for instance. Uh, <clears throat> now, DJ, I got to ask you about this. Your mm -hmm. notation here is Nicholas Cage in the National Treasure series of films. Mm -hmm. What the hell is that? National Treasure is a series of moves that have been done which connect icons in Americana. So you have like um, the uh, the the president's heads in Mount Rushmore. And there is, of course, an urban legend that behind the heads of Mount Rushmore is a secret room where a copy of the Constitution was supposed to be held under lock and key should there be some sort of a national uh, disaster so that uh, the part of the government is preserved. And uh, there's all sorts of conspiracy theory stuff that National Treasure series uh, explores, including uh, the Freemason Society. Okay, so th these were I'm, – I'm sorry to dwell on this, folks. It's okay. just that I don't know nothing about – this is a series of films, or was this TV stuff? No, these were films. Where the hell have I been? <laughs> they, they, they were documentaries. In the style of documentary, he was kind of an Indiana Jones type character. Uh, they were fictional then. Yes. Where the hell have I been? Okay. Anyways, <laughs> folks, uh, I'll ponder that later. Uh, who else was born in 64? Well, Michelle Obama. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Matt Dillon, the actor from In-N-Out. 
a lovely little gay movie. Oh, well, a movie about gay themes. Uh, there's something about Mary. It's a movie about spooge in your hair. Uh, <laughs> uh, Wanda Sykes. Uh, she's an actress, a comedian. She was in Monster in Law, Evan Almighty, Courtney uh, Live, a musician, and as DJ has noted here, the widow of Kurt Cobain. Also, last but not least, Bobby Flay, a chef and restaurateur. DJ, now, this movie, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, came out in 64, as we said. What other box office movies uh, were coming out at that time? We know Mary Poppins did. What else? Yes, well, Mary Poppins was number one that year, and it brought in $102 million. And uh, just on its heels, ironically, was My Fair Lady, which starred uh, Audrey Hepburn. And uh, actually, uh, Julie Andrews ended up being in, I want to say, the Broadway production of My Fair Lady. Uh, goodness gracious. You know, I, I, I'm i not sure. I, I almost, I, I think... I, I, I want to say Barbara Streisand, I, 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 but probably not. I've got it all mixed up, I'm sure. <laughs> well, uh, you know, Julie Andrews tried out for the role in My Fair Lady because she had been in the theater production. And so she took the Mary Poppins role instead when it went to Audrey Hepburn. That's the story I've heard anyways. Oh, all right. Mary now Oh, go ahead. And, well, My Fair Lady was number two that year. It brought in $72 million. Now, now, before you get off that, uh -huh. it, it, am I imagining things, or did they did another singer dub in uh, the songs from My Fair Lady because Audrey Hepburn couldn't really sing? That is that is, possible? That's a good question. I wish Aunt Tudor were here to answer that. Aunt Tudor, God damn it! All right. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be swearing on this show. <laughs> All right. Okay, so uh, after the uh, number two slot there that year, number three, a nod to our folks across the pond there, we have Goldfinger, the 007 James Bond film, and that brought in 51 million with Mr. Sean Connery in that role. Old <laughs> everything, DJ. Our, our, uh, one of our uh, people in the chat room, Rick Blaine. Says Marnie Nixon dubbed the singing oh, uh, in uh, My Fair Lady. So uh, my suspicions were correct. Oh, right. And of course, because we like the underdog here at Matinee Minutia, well, Santa Claus Conquers the Martian didn't quite place in the box office. So, wow, oh, no, how, oh, that's awful. What did it make any money at all? Well, let's take a quick look here. Um, we are getting the, the bean counters in on this. And uh, let's take a gander. Uh, you'll oh. you have to excuse me, folks. I came from the office Christmas party. So, uh, you right. know. Uh, now, the, the producers brag that this made a lot of money. And they did it for a song and a prayer. I mean, it was a super low budget affair. <laughs> and it ended up, you know, actually kind of making a lot of money the estimated budget for this film was apparently 200,000 so <gasps> it's sad to say that in today in 2019 that's the value of some people's homes in more rural america but that back then i'm i'm sure that that was closer to you know half a million dollars in in the money of that day yes well uh, the New York Times, DJ, in 1965 said that Santa Claus Conquers the Martians reaped a box office bonanza in a regular multi-theater booking. How about that? Oh. DJ, let's get into the cast of this movie. Oh, righty-dighty. So. Uh, who was Santy? 
who who played Santa Claus? Well, Santa Claus was played by Mr. John Call, and he was more known in the realm of theater. He was born in November of 1908, so the, the early part of the 20th century in Philadelphia. And uh, he was known this mostly for Santa Claus Conquers the Martians on the, on the screen. He also did, a few years later, a film called The Anderson Tapes and The Kid from Left Field, uh, a few years just before Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Now, he enjoyed a 30-year Broadway career in over 19 celebrated productions. And John Call also appeared on numerous television series such as Dragnet and I Spy. He joined the cast of this cult classic, from the original Broadway company of Oliver. So that's where they spotted him. And he played the role of Dr. Grimwig. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, DJ, you know, I got to say one thing about the producers of this movie. They cast a damn good Santee. Uh, uh, this Santa Claus, I thought, was pretty good i mean he was a good santa his beard looked real i suppose probably it wasn't but it did look real uh dj we've got a clip of santa why don't we uh let the kids uh hear it hello santa oh hello son oh Oh, hello, boys and girls. <laughs> oh, it's Andy. You caught me at a very busy time. Well, uh, <laughs> do you think you'll be ready by Christmas Eve? Well, we've never disappointed the kids yet. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, is it true that this year there's a rumor that you're going to use a rocket sled? No, sorry. We're going out the good old-fashioned way with my reindeer. Prancer and Dancer and Dunder and Blitzen and Vixen and Nixon. Nixon, uh, oh, I get, uh, well, I always can't son it. I get those names mixed up, but the kids know their names. Santa, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there you are. We have so much to do, and you stand here dawdling talking to this visitor. Mr. Anderson. This is Mrs. Claus. Uh, we're dear. We're on television. How do you do, Mr. Anderson? Ma'am. Now, television? Did you say we're on television? Oh, oh dear. Oh, why didn't you tell me? Oh, my hair's a mess. Mm. <laughs> Hello there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> DJ, now, apparently... As far as pop culture goes, this is the first depiction of Mrs. Claus on any kind of movie or TV. Is this true? It is. So uh, it, it follows that wonder there. You know, uh, the uh, the image of Santa Claus, I believe, has been accredited to be popularized with such brands as Coca-Cola Absolutely, very much so. And uh, you know, this is uh, one of the uh, the first films of that era where he's he's uh, you know in his workshop, and now he's at home, and so of course you get to meet the misses. And it's the first we didn't see Mrs. Claus before this. I don't believe so. It's she weird. she may have been uh, you know mentioned, but you never got to see her on screen. Uh, you may have thought possibly that was Shirley Booth, but that was not Shirley Booth. It sure sounded like her. And I actually don't have a notation here who who did play uh, Mrs. Claus, but just have a very brief role in the movie. So John Call, he was great as Santee. Uh, and the, uh, the other main uh, protagonist is Leonard Hicks, the actor. He played, he was kind of like some kind of leader or high up muckety muck of Mars, anyways. He was also the father of our two main uh, Martian children. And Rick Blade just posted a picture of them. There they are. And um, so uh, Mar- Leonard Hicks was born in Oregon. And we don't know a lot about him. There's only three credits to his name. <laughs> Sorry, that's all I got. Uh, so then we have uh, Vincent Beck. Now, he's the bad guy. Voldar. And, uh, you know, DJ, I got to tell you, as far as uh, Santa Claus 
conquering the, the Martians or conquering Mars. Would, would you not agree with me that Mars seems like a pretty friendly place, basically? Yeah, it's very suburban what we see. It's like um, there's been a lot of programs that have discussed uh, what our influence would be on other cultures through TV and radio. And certainly this has been the case with you know, other nations of the world. So that just continues on with, okay, well, they probably can get our TV shows and our radio programs uh, if there's life on Mars. And I wonder what kind of effect it would have. So, you know, this is sort of a, you know, this is the effect that we've had on them. And of course, it's discussed in the film where uh, the, the husband and wife on Mars, they are talking about the children are behaving strangely. But if you approach this from the perspective of it being a Christmas story, it's just, you know, um, it's it's typical. It's like all the stories of children when they're just the right age, that they're excited about Christmas coming. And, you know, maybe in school there's a countdown calendar telling you, oh, so many days until vacation, no more homework. And uh, these kids on Mars are just gobbling up that excitement. And And they're watching the Earth broadcasts. Yeah, and so there, the the wife is thinking it's odd. The children are hardly eating; they're hardly sleeping. Well, of course, they're watching all of these shows about Christmas. They know something big's coming. Yeah, and oddly enough, they're watching completely expressionless. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> uh, it's because we we find out that that basically they they are automatons. They're that's the way they're born, and um, that's one of the problems Mars has. So, but anyways, I, I just thought that basically this is this this Mars place. They got some problems, but you know they're kind of friendly, and I don't. I'm not sure how much conquering happens, <laughs> but there is a bad guy. And he's played by Vincent Beck. His name is Voldar. He's very deep-voiced. And he was uh, usually playing heavy types of villain roles. Uh, Interestingly, he later became president of New York SAG. (laughs) After this film, he landed a lot of guest roles on TV at the time. One, uh, for example, Lost in Space and Time Tunnel. Thank you, Erwin Allen, and also the monkeys. So that was Voldar, the bad guy in the movie. There's just one bad Martian, folks. Yeah. DJ, who else do we got? Okay. Well, also, I was just going to make a quick aside there, Toppy. Uh, you and I talked behind the curtain. The The actor that played Voldar, he kind of reminded me a little bit of the uh, actor that was on Star Trek Deep Space Nine that was the, the former enemy commanding officer, Gul Dukat, because he kind of had that, that uh, you know, kind of a cowboy bad guy look that oh. about him. But uh, I, yeah, I, I could see that, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to remember his name right now. I know the actor that played um, the tailor, it was Andrew Robinson, but Spanky probably knows this one. They they were in Western films a couple of times. So the uh, strangely enough, while this person was not considered the star of the film in '64, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, this next actor is the only one to date that I recognized from this film. Okay, really? Because I did not. Go, go ahead. Okay, well, uh, Bill McCutcheon played Droppo, and Droppo was kind of the the slapstick comic relief in this film. Yeah, he, he played the Martian. Yeah, the Martian who was found asleep on the job by the big boss. And of course, when uh, Kimar comes in and finds Droppo asleep on the floor, Droppo uh, comes up with the excuse that I wasn't sleeping, I was just practicing. It's been a <laughs> while. <laughs> but Bill McCutcheon was a Kentucky born actor. And uh, he once worked for CBS as an usher at the studio in the beginnings of his career. 
You got to start somewhere. You sure do. And you pre- he previously formed and led several jazz bands and comedy trios. And at one point, he was performing in Manhattan nightclubs and Catskills resorts. So, you know, the, uh, the stories that uh, inspired Dirty Dancing, those kind of camps and resorts, that's, that's <laughs> where he was. Hey, and later we saw him in, in some uh, much later movies. What would we see him in? In 79, he was in a film with Dom DeLuise, and it also starred Suzanne Plachette. I love her. And uh, I don't have the name right now, but a star that was in a couple of the uh, Smokey and the Bandit movies. This was a film called Hot Stuff, and it was about stolen merchandise. And uh, also, Bill McCutcheon, in probably his most recognizable role, was in the 89 film with Julia Roberts and Sally Fields. He was in Steel Magnolias, and he played Shirley MacLaine's Old Flame. Oh, my God. He's sitting there at the dinner table. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, no, no, no. You know what? I'm thinking of a completely different movie. I, never mind. He was, I, he was kind of a shortish guy that was sheepish looking. He showed up at a party, right? He did. Yeah. And um, and uh, Dolly Parton's character said that she opened a can of worms. Ah, right. <laughs> uh, Rick Blaine in the chat room posted uh, the picture of the character named Droppo. And there he is sleeping. And that is Bill uh, how do we pronounce his last name? McCutcheon. McCutcheon, yes. Excellent. Now, uh, last but not least, uh, one of the little kid aliens is a girl, and she's played by Pia Zadora. Now, DJ, I got I to gotta fess up to something, okay? <laughs> so I had never seen this movie, right? Right. I'd heard about it. I'd heard about it many places, many times. I've I've heard the lore about it. I, I knew it was in the sixties, blah blah blah, and I knew that Pia Zadora was in it. All right, in my mind, uh, Pia Zadora was a twenty-something in this movie, and sort of uh, played a hottie. Mar- Mar- uh, Martian alien. Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> you were thinking of an Orion slave girl, weren't you? <laughs> Anyways, I assumed that Z- Zador was is the same time period as like Eartha Kitt, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I saw this damn movie and she was a tiny little kid, I was like, "What? This blows my mind." And then I find out that Pia Zador isn't from the 60s at all she she, she, it may have been her film debut and she was a little kid but the only other time we ever got to know about her was it had it wait it was 1981 (laughs) and and she was in the role of of, of some movie called butterfly which is was a piece of crap movie And and she won a golden globe award as a new star I guess for that stupid movie and it's simultaneously winning golden raspberry award for worst actress for that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyways, I thought she was a product of the sixties as like an, an adult or anything. I, 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 this was a surprise to me. No, she plays this little alien kid. She's just a child. Yes. And, uh, you know, if, if you, blinked you would have missed her because uh she was just the kid that had her eyes glued to the tv set but like yourself when i saw that name it was the only name i recognized from more recent fame and i thought to myself which one is she was she the wife of course she wasn't you you didn't know either (laughs) well i don't feel so bad now (laughs) but of course miss pia zadora was uh you know, later on known to be the guest of the week on such fabulous shows as The Love Boat. She has won a few of the Razzies, the uh, the award for She Tried, basically. <laughs> okay, now wait a minute. Rick Blaine just posted a photo of her as today. I do not know this woman. I really, she passed me by. 
uh, didn't she had some? Didn't she sing? She sang, right? Yeah, didn't there, she sing? There were a couple of albums that have come out now. Most notably, the one that I found was in the early to mid '80s. So, uh, of course, today she's she's in her 60s. So. Uh, it's been a while since she did an album, and uh, the heyday of her career was those appearances in the 70s and 80s in the sitcom. So, you know, she would have been like in her 20s and 30s back then. All right. Uh, DJ, uh, why don't we play uh, clip two? Ancient one of Mars, I call upon you, Chochim Mirzai, Kima, and the council chiefs. We need you, Chochim. You called me Kimar? Something is wrong with our children. Their only interest is watching meaningless Earth programs on the video. What time of year is it now? It is the middle of September. Not here. I mean on Earth. It is early December on Earth. Close to the time of the Christmas. What is a Christmas? It is an occasion for great joy and peace on the planet Earth. And for children, it is also a time of anticipation as they await the arrival of Santa Claus and his gifts. What has this to do with our children, Ancient One? We have no children on Mars. They have children's bodies, but with adult minds, they do not have a childhood. I've seen this coming for centuries. They are born. Our electronic teaching machines are attached to their brains while they are in their cradles. Information is fed into their minds in a constant stream. And by the time they can walk, they are adults. They've never played. They've never learned to have fun. Oh my God, folks! That 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 is the premise, that that sums up the the whole predicament of these poor Martians that Santa Claus has to conquer. Anyways, so we are at about the halfway mark of the show. Oh, good. <laughs> okay, so this song—I mean, this movie—came out with a song that played at the opening and the ending. Alrighty, so this is your chance to go grab a drink. Visit the little half moon house and be back. DJ, I have lost my notes uh, to give. Mm-hmm. Oh, it spells uh, to give these uh, the lyricist and the and the songwriter credit. I what I do remember about them is that the lyricist and the the songwriter of that song had been part of Tin Pan Alley, which was in New York City. And it was just like a factory that churned out songs, but they were creative. They were, oh, the juices were flowing in this place. And, and they, the people that worked there uh, made a lot of hits. And anyways, these two guys did a whole bunch of stuff, mostly in TV, uh, writing songs and things, uh, doing music. The, the, the two of them, I'm not sure if they, ever collaborated again oh my goodness oh spanking what are you doing <laughs> uh, by the way let's uh, let's uh um uh say hi to the chat room we are lucky enough when we do this live that folks show up in the chat room uh to join us and interact with us and so tonight dj i saw your husband here somewhere for a while but we have uh rick blaine 1964 and we have spanking b arthur a podcast extraordinaire he's doing like five or six uh, dozen podcasts right now and <laughs> i ca- i like to call him spanky so if you ever hear me say spanky that's spanking b arthur uh, we've got our good pal, Tommy. 
And uh, thank you all for uh, being here and being part of the show uh, tonight with us. So, Tommy, uh, we've talked about the cast, and now we want to tell folks a little about those who made this film. Now, the uh, the creative team, so the film was the idea of producer Paul Jacobson, and he worked in video production and wanted to move into feature films. Now, he hired writer Glenville Merrith to develop the idea, and Nicholas Webster to direct, made this film through his own company called Jaller Productions. Now, Jacobson called the film a Yuletide science fiction fantasy and said he made it because of a perceived gap in the market except for Disney. There's very little in film houses that children recognize as their own. Now, Jacobson succeeded in selling the film's distribution rights to Joseph E. Levine. Levine was born in a slum in Boston, Massachusetts in uh, the beginning of the uh, 20th century there in 1905 was the youngest of six children of a Russian Jewish immigrant Taylor and became an American film producer. Now at the time of his death, it was said he was involved in 497 films. Can you imagine as a producer, distributor and financier? And these included two women, Contempt, The Tenth Victim, Marriage to Hellion Style, Lion in Winter, The Producers, probably the one I recognize the most, The Graduate, oh, of course. Uh, Marriage Too Far, Carnal Knowledge, Joseph E. Levine was big time stuff. And he's part of this damn movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. My favorite thing, my favorite thing about Joseph Sophie Levine. Uh, he helped revolutionize U.S. film marketing because he was responsible for bringing Godzilla, King of the Monster, uh, into USA theaters from Japan. And that's mostly why I love the guy. Hmm. So, uh, also, we have the director, and uh, this was Nicholas Webster. No, Nicholas Webster was born in Spokane, Washington, and some of his other works include In Search Of. I love that show. Oh, oh. folks, In Search Of was a 70s, 70s show uh, narrated by Leonard Nimoy, and uh, it was one of the first uh, shows about weird things. I How to describe it, DJ? Oh, boy. Well, there's been many an attempt today to make things in that same spirit it inspired imagination and awe and wonder of natural wonders of of uh, the world and of the cosmos it was like mysteries and and spooky things and weird things and unexplained things and all with the beautiful narrative voice of mr leonard nimoy yeah, it was a half-hour syndicated thing uh, that would appear. I don't know. I got it like on Saturday afternoon. You know, it, it wasn't a network thing. It was syndicated. Um, anyways, uh, we digress. Uh, so Nicholas Webster did some TV, right? Right. He also did one of my favorite shows of the period. There, the seventies. Get smart. He did an episode of that. He also did. Uh, Mannix, which I think that was a spy show, correct? Well, a cop show. Cop show. I don't okay. think it was a spy so, so, show so much as a, a cop crime solving guy. He also did Bonanza and he did an episode of The Waltons. Aw. Oh, God, I love him. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so let's talk about where this was done. This is unusual, folks. This was a it, this was not a Hollywood movie. It was the brainchild of people who just pulled this out of their collective ages and uh, got it done. And it was it was done in a studio that was named Michael Meyerberg Studios in New York. What it really was was an abandoned aircraft hangar in, in Long Island. <laughs> Uh, they made 
good use of their limited budget. They had... Uh, DJ, would you not agree with me that the sets and the interiors and, like, the furniture, that, that, that wasn't just throwaway stuff. That was good. Yeah, they they did pretty good for the budget that they had that. Yeah, I mean, take a look again, folks, at the... Uh, um, the exterior shots, uh, but 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 especially the 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 uh, the spaceship interior. Some of that furniture was like, where the where the hell where the hell did they buy that stuff or find it? You know. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, small budget, but I mean, these guys were really trying. I thought. Yeah, and um, you know, it, it it looked pretty good for the budget, as I said, and. Uh... You know, it was filmed in Long Island, you were saying. Now, Toppy, we also have a, a few tidbits of info about the movie that uh, we're going to go ahead and delve into here. Now, of course, this is a Christmas movie married to sci-fi and done in the early 60s. So you've got so many undertones here and, um, you know, the, the Martians are on the other side so it's kind of a of a cold war sort of a thing. But- well, okay, but there's only one bad Martian. The rest of them are all really nice. Right, right. Let's see. So the the guns that the Martians used, yes. they were actually painted whammo uh air blasters. Now, you- now DJ, this is absolutely fabulous. Uh these guns um, were literally toys that they picked up at the toy store, and they didn't even bother to dub uh, uh, in a sci-fi brrrp or you know ray gun blast. They used the sound that the toys actually made, which was a pop. And all these toys did was blast air. And these were the guns. <laughs> Well, they painted them up, but these were the the Martians' ray guns. A blast of air is powerful fun. And now, the most powerful force in the world, wind power, is inside Whammo's air blaster. Unbelievable, but true. You blast out the air and the target breaks up. Draw in the wind with the air compression lever and blow out candles across the room. It's invisible, this magic power to surprise, to tease. Yes, the Air Blaster is fun for all the family. It makes you laugh and love it. You have the power of the wind in your own hands. The amazing power to hit any target up to 40 feet away, safely, accurately, with free ammunition, invisible air. Whammo's Air Blaster was invented to delight your friends in a thousand ways. And with your Air Blaster, you get this gorilla target and four weird monster targets. Own an Air Blaster and you own the power of the wind. Get your hurricane gun, the mighty, the astonishing Air Blaster. Sold everywhere for the fun of it by Whammo. Folks, that popping noise is the noise they make in the movie. <laughs> you know, I when I saw some of the weapons they had, it looked like something from a hair salon because they have those big things to give people volume in their hair. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. So the movie also references um uh, I forget who. Oh, one Martian says he's fascinated by an by an Earth toy, and he describes it as a coiled spring that walks downstairs. <laughs> Folks, we know what that is, right? It's a slinky. And I wanted to do a slinky deep dive, folks, because who doesn't love the slinky? So it was invented and developed by Richard T. James in 1943. Believe it or not. And he demonstrated, ah, Rick Blaine, 1964, is on this in the chat room. He just posted a photo of the air blaster. Pop. Uh, anyways, about the, about the Slinky. Uh, he, uh, the, the inventor demonstrated it at Gimbel's department store in Philadelphia in 1945. The toy was a hit. It sold its entire inventory of 400 units in 90 minutes. So, 
Uh, James and his wife, Betty, knew they had a good thing going, and they set up plans to manufacture Slinky and uh, released several toys and related toys, such as, well, your ordinary Slinky. And then the Slinky dog, does anybody remember the Slinky dog? (laughs) And Susie, the Slinky worm. (laughs) Uh, So... Uh, the the this couple um, stayed involved uh, with their company and made a lot of money. Eventually, uh, sold the company to to Poof Products Inc. Whoever they were, God only knows who owns the Slinky today. Uh, but it was originally priced at one dollar, uh, but many paid more due to price increases of spring steel throughout the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, Still uh, went up and down as term, in terms of cost, but it remained moderately priced throughout its history, and uh, that's because uh, Betty James, uh, the wife of the inventor, was very concerned, nobly, about the toy's affordability for poor customers. She wanted that damn toy, no matter what the price of steel, uh, to be affordable, and uh, in 19... 19- Oh, I'm sorry. In 2000, Slinky was inducted into the National Toy Hall of Fame based at the Strong Museum in Rochester, New York, and uh, will remain in our hearts and in the museum as one of them their toys that uh, you just can't forget. In its first 60 years, kids, Slinky sold 300 million units and uh that's the slinky well toppy we have just a couple of things we want to mention because i also want to talk a little bit about christmas because it is that time of the year it sure is (laughs) so most of the cast from santa claus conquers the martians uh like the the star of the film john call that played santa came from broadway shows of the time Now, a new audience discovered the film when it was critiqued on Mystery Science Theater 3000. So there's a whole generation of folks who know of this mostly because it was an episode of that show. Yes. And uh, this film is listed among the 100 most amusingly bad movies ever made in a Golden Raspberry Award. Oh, well, Piazzadora. Founder John Wilson's book, The Official Razzie Movie Guide. Now, Toppy, tell me a little about the helmets. Well, okay, so the Martians wore these uh, uh, funky things on their head that suspiciously looked like diving diving masks. Uh, you know, goggles that you put on your face when you went underwater. And uh, they were green, of course. By the way, DJ, did you like the makeup for the Martians? Oh, God. Did it it not look like they just took some green makeup and smudged it on their faces? It looks like, I mean, you know, I, I grew up in rural western New York, and I have to say, it looks like they just came in from a hunting trip. Yes. It, oh, TJ, that is perfect. That is exactly. It looks like they're trying to camouflage themselves. Uh, anyways. Um, I have to assume that it was just hot under those lights because at some point the makeup just disappeared on their faces. Well, I, I, it's like it's like nobody had time to really do a real makeup job. So I bet the actors themselves just took the green makeup and went. (laughs) (laughs) We only have one can. We only have one can and you have to share. Yes. 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 (laughs) So Toppy, um, since this is the holiday season, we just thought we'd take a moment to mention the things that were popular in the realm of gifting at the time. So, of course, one of our most cherished memories is that year that we weren't quite a teenager. And uh, when you were 12, you probably had a special memory of Christmas. Now, in the year that this film came out in 1964, the most popular toy for Christmas time then was G.I. Joe figures. All right. That now, makes sense to me because about 65, I think, I, I remember getting 
not D, not GI Joe uh, DJ, mm-hmm. GI Joe's best friend Ben. Oh, that's, that's who I had, and I immediately took his clothes off and played with the doll naked. <laughs> Top, <laughs> Toppy is using air quotes when he says "best friend." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Oh, so Toppy, uh did you know uh what was your favorite toy around when you were twelve? Do you remember what you got that year? All right, so that would have been nineteen seventy-four. Um, you know, honest to golly, I do not know what I got at that age, but I do know that uh uh experts say that the popular toy in 1974, the most popular toy were Tonka trucks, those metal uh, trucks and things. So I think I was too old for that. And I, I just have no clue, no clue <laughs> what I actually got when I was 12. We're blocking. Um, for me, when I was 12 years old, it was the same year. Now, I didn't get one of these, mind you, because I was the last of four kids. There was no money in the budget to get me the big ticket items. And uh, if it was a big ticket item, well, you better believe that Dad bought it for himself. Um, the Sega Genesis came out the year that I was 12. Oh, oh you are a computer kid from the get-go. <laughs> I didn't get one, though. I've got a story about how I ruined Christmas wanting a Super Nintendo. I didn't get it. But I do remember that about when I was 12, I used my favorite Christmas gift I used to get. My parents for a while used to get me a subscription to a game magazine. Nintendo had something called Nintendo Power. Jesus, I thought you said gay magazine. You game, game. Clean out your ears. I mean, it is Spud's Flats, but get those potatoes out of there, sir. Yeah. But, uh, you know, for a couple of years there, they got me the magazine. And if you paid for the whole year, you got a special gift. You got a free game. And I remember getting a game called Dragon Warrior. And it was a role-playing game. And you got a uh, a poster that was a map of this enchanted land that you got to explore in the game. So that was about my Christmas experience around the age of 12. Now, Toppy, we are at the point where we're going to tell folks about things well, that they might also like that yeah, they like this. Do that, I, I must I must mention in the chat room uh, that uh, Spanky says that uh, he had a toy uh, that was a doll of Steve Austin, the $6 million man, and he says he declothed Steve, <laughs> Steve Austin. And uh, Rick Blaine said that he had two G.I. Joes, and he says they were lovers. And uh, uh, his parents tried to butch him up. Anyway, don't you love that? Oh, my God. Uh, Oh, wait a minute. Tommy says, I wanted Wizard of Oz dolls. And instead he got Fury Face Oh, furry face G.I. Joe's. Oh, you know, you know what Tommy's referring to? Uh, uh, there were a few G.I. Joe dolls that came out toward the end that had lifelike hair. Yeah. <laughs> they they had a beard. Yeah, they had lifelike. In other words, the it wasn't painted on hair in the plastic. It was sort of like some sort of fuzz they glued on. <laughs> lifelike hair. Oh my God! Where were we, DJ? Uh, so we are going to tell folks about things that are like Santa Claus conquers the Martians, or so that uh, folks who appreciate this might also like. Santa Claus conquers the Martians is, is a weird, weird, weird movie. It made me think of. Um, there were a lot of it, it. It made me think of very low budget movies that were being put out by independent, non Hollywood uh, uh, places, and that's all all I really could come up with. By the way, folks, do you remember the Blob, which launched Steve McQueen's career? That was also an independent movie that was made on the East Coast. And it also had a movie. Uh, it, it had a, a a fun song, "Beware of the Blob," 
uh, as it's uh, the beginning, just like this movie. Uh, so, anyways, hmm. those are the things that this movie reminded me of. Okay. Well, uh, a couple of things that I wanted to suggest, if you enjoyed Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, which was a 1964 sci-fi holiday adventure film, uh, there is a movie made a couple of years later. Now, granted, I have not seen this movie, but it has come highly recommended by many sources. And it was a film made in 66 called The Christmas That Almost Wasn't. And this is a story about Santa Claus getting an eviction notice. His landlord... <laughs> Yes, his landlord that owns the property that the North Pole is on has told him that he needs to pay up or he's out on his ear. And hence the name The Christmas That Almost Wasn't. Now, um, it's no secret that uh, my uh, my dad uh, had a great love of old films and came from a small yes. town. And so a film that I would recommend that's not related to this, but is something my dad used to watch uh, in the holidays, was a movie with Bing Crosby and Ingrid Bergman. Now, this is a star, of course, from a past film that we've discussed, Notorious. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) So this is a film from 1945 called The Bells of St. Mary's. Oh, well, this is a legit movie. Yes. And um, Bing Crosby's character plays the the traveling um, Catholic priest who has been sent to this school to help save it from closing. And Ingrid Bergman plays one of the nuns in the, uh, the school there. And I think my father had a fondness for this film because his aunt was a nun and she had a special role in saving his family when they went through a divorce. So, All right. Well, if you are going to go from Santa Claus Conquers <laughs> the Martians to the Bells of St. Mary's, then I will say, DJ, that my f- favorite overall Hollywood-type old black-and-white wonderful Christmas movie is, without a doubt, The Miracle on 34th Street, the original. And, you know, I'm surprised we didn't bring that movie up when we talked about A Mom for Christmas, because that was a department store movie at Christmas. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, exactly. There you go. All right. Oh, my gosh, DJ, we have uh, talked and talked and talked. It's been an hour, maybe more. Uh, We got to end the sucker. Yeah, so now we got to pick out... uh, those coins and uh, yes, folks, our magic coins—they were <laughs> they were left by magicians back in the days that this theater uh, was like all about uh, what what do they call it? Vaudeville? Vaudeville That's days, it. yeah. So he left some coins behind, and we just plunk one in the machine, and it lets us know what's coming up here. It's a gumball machine. There you go, DJ. There's a capsule there for you. It's plastic. You can open it. It will have a slip of paper inside to tell you what our next movie is. Okay. All right. So next time on Matinee Minutia on Friday, January 3rd. No, this is an early 70s action adventure. It takes place on a cruise ship, which is out for one last hurrah, and it's tossed like so much as a bathtub toy. This film is directed by disaster film expert Erwin Allen, has an all star cast with Gene Hackman, Shelley Winters, and Roddy McDowell. Next time on Mad Name Minutia, The Poseidon Adventure. Ah, I love that movie. I love that movie. Uh, folks, thank you so much for joining us, especially, especially, especially uh, our friends in the chat room. DJ, we do this live 
every first and th uh, third Friday of the month. How do folks join us live? Certainly. Well, you can go to either univazpods.net and click the tower for the streaming audio. That's also available on our shows page at matinemanusha.com. But you can also look for the blue mask there, which is Discord. It's a chat room for folks that like gaming. If you enter that Discord, you can participate in our audience and be part of the show. Now, I've heard uh, people use this, and I've asked them, was it easy? Was it difficult to to, to, to define this? And, and the, the several people I've asked said, no, it, it was easy. It was okay. So you can find it, folks. You can join us here live every first and third Friday of the month. Uh, thank you, chat room. Thank you to Spanking B. Arthur. Thank you to Tommy. Thank you to uh, Billy. Thank you to Rick Blaine, 1964. What a surprise to see him here. And, uh, well, what can we say? Join us next time when we see that old boat turnover <laughs> upside down. Alrighty, well, thank you so much for joining us, folks. <laughs> Merry Christmas. And uh, let's give everyone a round of applause. <laughs> Say good night, Gracie. Good night, Gracie. Thank you for listening to Matinee Minutia. Our show streams live on the first and third Friday of the month. Go to univazpods.net, click the tower for audio, enter Discord for chat. You can find our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Visit our webpage at matineeminutia.com. Tweet us on Twitter at matineeminutia. Find our group on Facebook. Have an idea for a show? Or let us know how we're doing. Email us at matineeminutia at gmail.com. Chubb's Gone Wild with Matt and Tom. Speak up. The Smellcast by Tommy Smelly. Be heard. Tastes like burning with Tim and James. Unique voices in podcasting. The Shy Life Podcast with me, Paul the Shy Yeti. Univazpods.net.